a wonderful aroma of love flowing out from the cornerstone members. Well, you see, today we are just finishing three months reading, reciting, studying, reflecting on, and praying about that sincere love that we just read about in that passage from Romans chapter 12. So three months, we should have it down pat by now. Uh, surely by now we should be exuding this new way of life that Jesus brings us in the gospel. And now that we have perfected love, we can move on next week to other things like faith and hope. Would that that were true. Uh, it's like saying if you spent three months uh, listening to someone expound the rules of tennis and the fundamentals of the game, you'd be ready to play Roger Federer. Uh, no, that's not how it works. Uh, no, this growth into conformity to Christ, it's a lifelong learning affair. It takes lots of practice. And more than that, it takes the, the powerful work of the Spirit of God to help us put off that old self with its selfish ways and to put on that new self, which is ours in Christ. But I do hope that our time during these last three months was well spent and it will be used of God to help us in our relationships with one another to experience something of the beauty of what the apostle has described in, in those words. For Romans 12 really is a picture of relational beauty. It, it, Paul shows us here the way of life that, that God has created for us to live, this sincere love. It's a way of life that is morally upright. It hates what is evil. It, it clings to what is good. In all our relationships with one another, we display a, a kind of affection that now is found only within a close-knit family. We no longer try to outdo one another, living in competition for pride of place. No, we're, we're quick to bestow honor on others rather than on ourselves. There's, there's no doubt passion for serving the Lord because we would, we would know his goodness. And so we would live in hopeful expectation. We would be, be patient in prayer. No one would be stingy and kind of Scrooge-like looking out for themselves. No, we would all share with one another generously, knowing from whom we have received all that we have. I think we're okay. There won't be a fire. There would be no longer people who were strangers, outsiders, no, in hostility, hostility excuse me, hospitality. There would be a warm welcome for all. Uh, and we would have a sensitivity to the feelings of others, sharing each other's joy, sharing each other's sorrows, maintaining a humble mindset that considers others more important than ourselves. You see, just imagine for yourself, just imagine what kind of world this would be if we all acted as we should. Such harmony, such love, such beauty. This is picture that Paul gives us here. It's meant to inspire us to embrace the gospel more fully so that we might be transformed by it. But as we talked about last week here in our worship, Paul is very much a realist about the world in which we live. God's kingdom has not yet come. His will is not yet done on earth as it is in heaven. We still live in a fallen world, a spoiled world, a sinful world. And as long as we live, we must deal with this reality. And that's why Paul has to say in verse 18 of our passage, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
Though you were to do what you can to live at peace with everyone, such peace may not be possible, Paul says. For there will be those who will be hostile to the gospel and won't share in the life to which it calls us. And so in the final verses of this passage, Paul talks about how we are to respond to those who oppose us. And his words have both a negative and a positive dimension. And what Paul says here simply echoes what Jesus himself had taught his disciples during his earthly ministry. Negatively, we are not to pay back evil for evil, Paul says. That is, we're to practice non-retaliation. In our dealings with other people who provoke us or offend us or who do us wrong, we are not to seek revenge. No tit for tat, no getting even, no giving them a taste of their own medicine. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth may be an appropriate principle of justice for governing what happens in the court of law, but it's not how we are to conduct our personal relationships. Instead, we are to forgive those who wrong us, not counting their wrongdoing against them, and leaving the execution of justice to God and to the appointed agents of his wrath in the world. We are to display the same meekness that Jesus displayed when he was mocked and beaten and spat upon and ultimately hung on a cross. As the Apostle Peter says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, Jesus did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, insults come in all shapes and sizes. You know, there's a sarcastic remark, a social slight, a racial or ethnic slur, an ungrateful response, name-calling, a cutting comment of criticism, or someone cutting in front of you on the beltway, or... I mean, someone may even defriend you on Facebook. I mean, perish the thought. But how do you respond to these kinds of things? Do you kind of uh, sulk and pout? Do you secretly plot your revenge? Or do you turn the other cheek and forgive? Are you able to do that because you know that your personal honor is secure in the eyes of God? Don't guard your own honor, Jesus would say to us. Let God do it for you. Instead, be concerned about guarding the honor of others. Proverbs 19.11, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Now, this way of responding is not only commendable before God, it's also a good strategy for making peace. I think of Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. I like what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about this. He says, the only way to overcome evil is to let it run itself to a standstill because it does not find the resistance it is looking for. Resistance merely creates further evil and adds fuel to the flames. But when evil meets no opposition and encounters no obstacle but only patient endurance, its sting is drawn. And at last it meets an opponent which is more than its match. Then evil cannot find its mark. It can breed no further evil and is left barren. And so when we encounter those who oppose us, those who dishonor us or offend us or who hurt us, we should share in the meekness of Christ and not pay back evil for evil. 
Now, this is the, the negative side of Paul's instructions here. And, and uh, following this aspect of his instruction is hard enough. But the Apostle Paul goes beyond that. And again, he's simply echoing the teaching of Jesus. Not only are we not to retaliate, even more than that, we are to actively do good to our enemies. In verse 14 of Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends. On the contrary, verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, loving those who love you is easy, Jesus had said. Big deal. Even the pagans do that. You're to be different, he says. You're to be children of your heavenly Father. And he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You see, God showers all the good and the evil with his common grace. It's not just Christian farmers whose crops grow. No. There is a universal and indiscriminate character to God's practical kindness that ought to be reflected in his people. And for the believer... You see, that love is even more outstanding. It's just uh, um, astonishing. For the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He redeemed us so that we might be adopted as his own children in his family. We hadn't done anything to deserve that. We, we had done nothing to earn his love. Far from it. In fact, we had turned our backs on him. We had gone our own way. We were God's enemies. But you see, God has a love that flows out of his own nature. For God is love. His love is not governed by the way that uh, uh, he is treated by us. No, our human love only goes out to those we deem lovely. But God loves the unlovely. His is not a self-serving love, but a self-giving love. And it is, you see, when we love our enemies that we most fully display God's love. It is then that we show ourselves to be his children, displaying the family likeness of our heavenly father. It is then, as his image in the world, that we most fully represent who he is and so bring him the most glory. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. You see, this is how we express the merciful and gracious love of God. And then Paul says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now let's talk about this, because I know every time we've read these words together, some of you have been wondering what to make of them. Uh, these are actually not Paul's words. He's quoting directly from Proverbs 25, verse 22. And this statement is, of course, intended metaphorically as an idiom, but the question is, what does it mean? Well, the expression heaping burning coals on a person's head is found nowhere else in any ancient text that we know of, so that doesn't help. The words coals of fire or burning coals do appear twice in the Old Testament, pointing to the outpouring of God's wrath. And based on that connection, some have suggested that these words mean that, that doing good to one's enemies 
actually makes them more guilty and increases the severity of their punishment. The more mercy they reject, the more coals of fire will be heaped on their head. Now, Paul wouldn't be saying that we're to act kindly toward our enemy with the purpose of making his or her judgment more severe. He would simply be saying that that would be the result. Now, that view is possible. It was popular among ancient writers, and the reference to God's wrath in verse 19 provides some support. But most commentators reject it, following some in the early church, simply because it seems to be so out of place in the context of this passage. Paul and Jesus before him wants to discourage any spirit of retaliation. His whole purpose here is to express love toward enemies and to foster peace. And so consequently, most modern interpreters contend that the metaphor Paul uses here must refer in some way to the burning pangs of shame. You see, acting kindly toward our enemies presents a glaring contrast to the way that they have treated us that will cause them to be ashamed of their conduct and perhaps to repent and turn to the Lord whose love we embody. And maybe you've seen that happen. Although sometimes a person may get angry with you and you respond kindly to their unkindness. But over the time, their heart is convicted and they begin to change. Now, we're not sure why the proverb uses this particular expression to express that idea. It may be simply an idiom that we no longer grasp, which is not unusual, for who knows where an English idiom like it's raining cats and dogs comes from. We just know that when it's raining like that, we better have our umbrella. Uh, so we don't really know. I just say, don't be put off by the expression, you will heat burning coals on his head. We can't know for sure why the Bible puts it just this way, but it doesn't matter. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. That much is clear. And pray that by doing good to those who oppose you, your goodwill will bring the wrongdoer to repentance. And if it doesn't, you can be sure that that person will have to answer to a just God. Now this raises the question, who is your enemy that Jesus says you are to love? I would say, why anyone who might do any of the things for which you are tempted to retaliate? Anyone who might threaten your honor anyone who might encroach upon your rights, anyone who stands in a position of authority over you and makes demands that you don't like, or anyone who might ask something of you that you don't want to give. You see, my enemy is anyone who challenges myself and all that I want for myself. And when someone opposes me, not retaliating is good. But Paul would say, it's not good enough. Now, Paul, following Jesus, calls for a positive response of love. Now, I suppose it would mean that if, for some reason, we arrived here one Sunday morning to find people lining the sidewalks protesting against our church. Now, our response would be, I would hope, first of all, that we might ignore them, but no more than that, to offer them coffee and donuts. But I ask you, what would such love look like in your life? What good could you do to someone who opposes you? You see, this is critical. 
Because when we encounter any form of evil, we are always in danger of being caught up in it and being overcome by it. And we see this in mobs. Mobs, mobs can do awful things that no individual in the group would ever do on their own. But now you see we have social media mobs, don't we? And we have political tribes that pile on to some opposing victim with a vicious fury. You see, that's the way it is in the world. If you're attacked by someone, you attack back twice as hard. Don't let anyone get away with anything. That's the rule. The smallest provocation demands a merciless response. But you see, we as Christians, we know that there is a power that is greater than vengeance. It is the power of a merciful love. And you know, we, we know of that power because it is a power that has taken hold of us. It's the power that's revealed in the cross. It's the power that has been unleashed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see, we need to hold on to that power as we contend with evil in this world. That's why Paul closes this wonderful passage the way he does in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, he's setting before us two alternatives, and there are only two. Either you will be overcome by evil, as by repaying evil with evil, you'll be sucked into that sphere yourself. Either you will be overcome by evil when your enemy makes you just like himself. Or you will overcome evil with good. Instead of doubling evil by paying it back in kind, we can cut it in half by simply absorbing it in ourselves when it comes to us and then responding with love instead. Now, as I say this, I know how hard it is. I mean, let's be realistic here. Loving enemies is not a sentimental kind of love. This is not a Hollywood kind of love. This is a tough love, a courageous love, a, a conquering love. And someone who knew about that kind of tough love firsthand was Martin Luther King Jr. He spoke a great deal about the transformative power and the practical necessity of the tough love of loving one's enemy. In one famous sermon on this theme, his, in his uh, uplifting literary style, Dr. King preached these words. He said, upheaval after upheaval has reminded us that modern man is traveling along a road called hate in a journey that will bring us to destruction and damnation. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, the command to love one's enemy is an absolute necessity for our survival. Love, even for enemies, is the key to the solution of the problem of our world. Jesus is not an impractical idealist. He is a practical realist. Why should we love our enemies, King asked. Well, the first reason is fairly obvious. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Another reason why we must love our enemies is that hate scars the soul and distorts the personality of the hater. A third reason why we should love our enemies is that love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. 
love transformed with redemptive power. Good will overcome evil. In the end, it will, and we know it will, because Jesus Christ was not left in the tomb. He was raised from the dead on the third day, and he ascended into heavenly glory. And one day, that victory, that victory will be demonstrated to all. And as followers of Jesus, we must believe that is true. But you may ask, how can we possibly do this? Blessing those who curse us, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, giving to those who ask us, actually loving our enemies. It's so contrary to human nature, so foreign to the way we're used to living in this world. How is it possible? I say it's only possible as our hearts are captured and transformed by the love of God toward us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only possible if we have something more than just a sinful human nature. We can begin to live this way and to love this way only if we share something of God's divine nature. And that's what John says in his first letter, 1 John 4. He says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. I think of the words of Frederick Bruckner. He says, love for equals is a human thing. A friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. And for this, the world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failure, the unlovely. This is compassion. And for this, the heart of the world is touched. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing to love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice, the love of the poor for the rich, for the impoverished, for the privileged. And for this, the world is bewildered. And then there is love for the enemy, love for the one who does not love you but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain, the tortured love for the torturer. This is God's love. And by this, the world is conquered. You see, this is the love that Jesus brought into the world. This is the love that, that led him to a cross as a sacrifice for our sins. This is the love that he now pours out into our hearts by his spirit. And when we express this love, we show ourselves indeed to be his sons and daughters. And so I ask you this morning, have you been captured by this love, by this gospel? Does the thought of Jesus, the Son of God, hanging on a Roman cross for your sin, does that heap burning coals on your head? Are you shamed 
by the undeserved love that he has shown to you. When you had ignored him and disregarded him and disobeyed him, treating his grace toward you with disdain. I urge you to repent, to turn from your self-centered ways and open your life to this transforming love. Surrender to Christ and be set free from the oppressive slavery of self. And you will discover a new power to love as Jesus loved. You see, it's the gospel and the gospel alone that can enable us to overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come preparing ourselves to, to come to this communion table this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes more fully to what Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, help us to see the, the love outpoured in the cross. Our Lord, open our eyes to see it. Open our hearts to respond to it, to receive it, and to be transformed by it. As we take the bread and the cup, we, we look back and remember what Christ has done. As we take the bread and the cup, we, we realize that we are now in communion with him. He comes to live within us. And as we take the bread and the cup, we look forward to that great day when he will come in all his glory and we will share in that great messianic banquet and be transformed fully and completely into his glorious image. Lord, we pray that we may display the love that we've received more fully and so bring you honor and glory. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.